Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, White Sulphur. It's good to see you all. Thank you for braving the severe weather. <laughs> that we're having outside. Uh, for me, it felt a little bit severe this morning. People were making fun of me for still wearing my vest inside the building. Um, but the, again, thank you for being here. We're going to be in Mark 11. Go ahead and turn there. If you have your Bible with you, if you want to use a device, uh, that will be fine. It doesn't matter either way. There we go. Perfect. All right. So we're going to have a, uh, a chili cook-off and a bunko night coming up. And what I'm realizing is that really nobody here knows what bunko is. If you've ever heard of it or played the game, would you raise your hand? Oh, what? That's way more people than I thought. Okay, perfect. So we've got some people that know how to play bunko. All right. It's going to be a good time. Uh, I, the thing is, I get a little bit competitive when it comes to chili cook-offs. I'm not a cook. I'm not really good at cooking things. Uh, but I really like chili. And so I take it very seriously. And so I might break out the smoker even and see if that gives me an edge or uh, some other secret little tricks up my sleeve. So here's the thing. Uh, sign up at your own risk, okay, when it comes to the chili cook-off. But uh, all joking aside, I would really encourage you guys, sign up for that. Let's have a really good time. This is a great opportunity uh, to invite some friends, to invite some people out to this because it's, it's not an intimidating thing to invite someone to a chili dinner. Right? And, and some games around a table. So this is a really easy opportunity to make some connections and introduce some of your friends to some other people in the church. So make sure you take advantage of that. And just another thing, we do have a couple baptisms coming up. I'm gonna, uh, not quite ready to give the names from behind the pulpit, but it's just something to be really excited about. That there's people that are responding to the gospel, that are people that, are, that love the Lord and they're ready to take that next step in their faith and do it publicly and have their church family be there with them. That's something to celebrate. So uh, if that's something that's been weighing on your heart, if you've been thinking about Baptism. If it's something that you have questions about, would like to know more about, just find a way to connect with me. Grab me after service, message me on Facebook, whatever it is, we'll find a way to connect. I'd love to follow up with you more about that. So like I said, we're in Mark 11, starting in verse 27 this morning. The sermon is entitled, Love Warns. Love Warns. And if you've been, uh, if you've been paying attention the last few years, then you've seen a different twist on that phrase being pushed from a lot of different corners of society, even some claiming to be within uh, the, the Christian circle of things. And the, the other version of this is that love wins, right? And that sounds really great. And like, that's, some, that's something that I would want to rally behind because I do believe that in one sense that love obviously wins, right? We read from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God's love permeates all things and that his love is ultimately what wins, but the danger in the way that this phrase is often used is it's, it's used as a way to validate and affirm everything, right? That the only way that you could be truly loving of someone is to affirm and validate everything that they seek to do or say or think and anything other than unconditional affirmation and validation is unloving and hateful. If you're a Christian who holds the Bible to be authoritative for, for all areas of life and faith and practice, then you have felt the pressure from this kind of tone in our culture, 
right? Like, I don't think I'm alone in this. You, you felt this, that I, I don't affirm that, but that doesn't mean that I don't love that person. And, and, but they're going to think that I don't like them or that I hate them if I, if I don't do this or if I warn them about something. We feel this tension in our society at the moment. We live in a time that teaches that all forms of confrontation are inherently hateful. Right? That all forms, that if you confront someone on anything, that you're negatively judging them, that you're looking down on them, that you have a superiority problem in some way. Really, the, the mantra of our culture, uh, the, the standard by which all things are judged, is this phrase, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. And if you dare to not affirm that phrase, there's something wrong with you. Right? Then you're, you're going to be the one with the problem. Do what makes you happy. But we know that from Scripture, there's really two things we have to think about. The first is that true happiness, joy, is not rooted in chasing the pursuits that we think we want, but it's rooted in Christ. We find our joy in Him first, and from Him, all good things flow. We find our satisfaction and our joy in Christ. And also that our hearts, our emotions, are deceitful. The Bible says our hearts are are desperately sick and wicked, deceitful above all things. And they're not to be trusted. And so oftentimes what we actually want is what's the worst possible thing for us. Yet, this is what our culture, this is what our society is pushing. This is what they have bought into. And our hearts should not fill with rage against that culture and that society. That heart should break for for the... for the thing that has been pulled over the eyes of so many people, for the blindness that people walk in, for the lostness that is out there, the darkness. If we think about this logic for longer than, I don't know, five seconds, it starts to fall apart, right? It doesn't take much to poke holes in the do what makes you happy mantra. If my toddler, most of you know Luke, so you know this is not a far-fetched scenario, if he really desires to touch that hot stove, is it loving of me to tell him, yeah, go ahead, do whatever makes you happy? No, that's not loving of me because I know better, right? I know he's going to hurt himself. I know he's going to damage himself. I know better, and so I ought to warn him out of love. Is it loving of me to encourage the drug addict to take that next pill because in the moment they want to? No, that's not love. Is it encouraging of me Or is it loving of me to encourage the husband to go cheat on his wife? Because in the moment he wants to, even though I know it'll destroy his life, it'll destroy his family. That's not loving. But in the moment they want to. And so we think about these things. That this logic starts to fall apart very quickly. That doing what makes you happy in the moment will often cause you decades of pain and suffering and possibly an eternity of pain and suffering. And so we know that the world tells us to affirm out of love, but Jesus came to warn out of love. And today we're going to see in our passage this morning which one really is the act of love. Is it to affirm or is it to warn? So let's pray together and we'll read our passage this morning. Father, I pray that you would bring a joyful reverence to the room as we continue to examine your word, I pray that we are, just, we are not just spectators or consumers, but we participate in everything that happens on a Sunday morning. 
from the food that we share, the bread that we break, to the giving of our finances to fuel your kingdom, to the sermon, to singing together heartily with our, with our whole selves, Father. Help us to participate in what you are doing in this room and in our lives and in this community. I pray that walls would go down right now, that we would lay aside our defenses, that we would open ourselves to be examined by your Holy Spirit and your Holy Scriptures. Help us to have an honest conversation with ourselves and with you as we progress through this sermon this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 27 of Mark 11. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it and with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people... For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And this is our passage for this morning. So we remember that Jesus, uh, last Sunday, he was flipping tables. He was driving people out of the temple, right? So the, the religious leaders are really stirred up at this point. He's been saying some things that they felt like were crazy. Some things that challenged them. A couple things that made them look foolish. But now... This is just something they can't ignore. They have to do something about this Jesus. They're seeking to arrest him. They're seeking to destroy him. They want to discredit him. And what we see is that the scribes come with the Pharisees and other religious leaders. And these, these scribes, they can really be seen as kind of like a religious lawyer. They're experts in the law. They're also gifted and skilled debaters. And so they are most, most likely, almost, almost assuredly, the ones who come up with this question about baptism. 
It's right in their wheelhouse to come up with a question that would kind of incriminate Jesus. Well, we'll give him a trick question because either way he answers is going to be difficult for him. He'll alienate himself from one group of people or from the other. But what we see is that Jesus actually flips the tables on them and leaves them in a position to incriminate themselves. You see, if they say that the baptism of John was from God, then they have to answer why they didn't give it that affirmation in the moment when John was baptizing. They would also have to answer why they're having such a hard time with Jesus because Jesus said that, because John said that Jesus was who he said he was. So this puts them in a very tight spot, doesn't it? What about this baptism, scribes? If they say that, uh, if they say one thing or the other, they're going to get themselves in a lot of trouble. The lawyers have been stumped, and the chief priests and the Pharisees are faced with really kind of a checkmate at this point. And the deal that Jesus kind of strikes with them is that if you'll answer me, I'll answer you. But we have to have an honest conversation both ways. And then I'm willing to participate in what you're trying to do here. These, uh, these religious lawyers thought that they were going to intellectually wrestle <laughs> with the creator of logic. This was not a great plan from the beginning. So what he does is uh, they, they use this kind of uh, escape and they say, I don't know. Either way. So they, they don't really give an answer. Jesus says, well, then I don't owe you an answer if we're not going to have an honest conversation. But what he does is that he gives them a parable, something to chew on, something to think about, something that puts a stone in their shoe going forward. And what we have to be careful with parables is we don't want them, we don't want to try to make them stand on all four legs, as I had a professor say one time. The, the, the goal of a parable is just to communicate one or two main spiritual truths. We don't need to dissect it for every detail that we could possibly pull out of it. And what's nice about the parable that we have before us this morning is that uh, it interprets itself in the scriptures. We don't have to guess at what's going on here. In fact, it was so obvious that these religious leaders, who were obviously far from an intimate relationship with God at this point, knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was confronting them. He was warning them. He was saying, you have done all of these things from the lineage of your forefathers. And now it's your turn. You're doing the same thing. And because of all this, there's coming a time of judgment and destruction. It's a warning. It's a confrontation. But it's all done out of love. So our first point this morning is that love pursues. And we see this history throughout the scriptures. Throughout the Bible, we're compelled to see God as the one who pursues his people. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, they're hiding, they're ashamed, they're blaming each other. And it says that God came walking and calling their names. He came pursuing those people that were caught in their sin. Who was it that comes to Abraham, makes a covenant with him? He pursues him. He calls him out of his country Uh, commissions him and is going to send him to another, promising him that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations and the families of the earth. Who was it that pursued the Hebrews that were enslaved in Egyptian bondage? We see that God shows up in the form of a a bush, a, a fire in a bush, and he's talking, and he's pursuing Moses, and he says, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, and you're going to confront Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And again, we see that as a confrontation done out of love, because if Pharaoh had just listened, he would have spared himself a whole lot of heartache, wouldn't he? What about Saul? 
Jesus pursues Saul. He knocks him off his horse on the road to Damascus. He sets him on an entirely different trajectory. He says, I've got a plan for you. Here's what you're going to do for me. He's pursuing these people, and he pursues us. This isn't just something that he did. It's something that he does. He pursues people. And I would be willing to bet that you could think back to a time in your life, whether you weren't a Christian yet or you were, but you were caught in sin. There is some time in your life that the Lord has pursued you, that you have felt restless until your soul rested in him. That he didn't let you get comfortable. He was pursuing your soul out of love. In our parable this morning, we have this landowner, and he's repeatedly pursuing that which belongs to him. His efforts are rejected. Over and over, his efforts are rejected. He sends people, he pursues, he says, hey, that's mine, it's rightfully mine, I've come to collect it. They reject, they're violent, and there's this one final messenger that is sent. It's one final person in pursuit of what rightfully belongs to the landowner. It starts in verse 6 of the parable. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Our God pursues that which he loves. And really to that end, he loves the world. He is pursuing humanity. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, on a a rescue mission in pursuit of our souls. He did all this pursuing you and I after the murder of so many of his messengers. You think back to the prophets of the Old Testament. How many of them died? How many of them faced beatings? Over and over and over, and yet he pursues and he commissions and he sends. His love pursued us to the point of torture and humiliation and death on our behalf. In fact, we, we affirm that Jesus Christ is God. The final messenger is himself. Okay, I will go. I will take my message to my people. Knowing full well what faces him is humiliation and torture and death. And as I was thinking through this this week, it just begs the question, like, CJ, who are you pursuing in that kind of love? You see, what I'm worried about is how far I would go to take the gospel to someone. How far would I really go to pursue someone? Looking at the example of Christ leaving heaven, having to be born with a bunch of animals, that that seems like it would be the worst part, but it just gets worse as he goes on. That's how far Christ would go, but I'm worried that so many Christians, that you know, we, we come to the bridge of a simple inconvenience, whether it be our finances or our time, or we just don't want to feel awkward. And we say, I can't cross that bridge, I'm sorry. You know, not every mission field is my mission field. I'll just stay in my lane right over here and it'll be fine. But that's not the kind of love that we see from the Lord. No, the Lord pursues out of love. Not only does he pursue, his love confronts. 
Love confronts us in order to reconcile us to God and to each other. It's never to heap upon us more shame or more guilt or to simply drive us into the ground. That's not what's happening. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. That's a confrontation. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And really, in fact, the rest of the parable is a loving confrontation. In fact, he's packaged it in such a way that within his infinite wisdom, he knew that they would understand. And the evidence shows that they did understand the warning. What they do with it, that's on them. But they understood the warning. At the end, it says they perceived that he was talking about them. You see, any time that Jesus confronts a person in his earthly ministry, like I said, the point is not to drive them further into the ground. The point is always to bring them back, to point them towards the cross, to move them towards repentance and towards redemption and towards love that they are, they are able to step into. That is the point of the confrontation. So we have to ask ourselves if we ever confront someone on their sin, if we're just doing it to feed our need to be kind of morally superior, have we forgotten how Christ confronted us? How he conducted himself? Because he's truly the only one that has the right to show that he's morally superior. And yet his goal is not to crush. His goal is to reconcile. Turn away from that. Turn towards Christ. And so we're going to do an exercise this morning. Turn to Matthew 23. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 23. It's worth turning there for this. I'll give you guys um, just a second. What we're going to do in Matthew 23, you're going to see the seven woes that Jesus has for the religious leaders. And I'm not going to read all of them. I'm kind of going to, I'm going to skip through some of them. But we're going to look at this and we're going to see that Jesus is not afraid to confront That Jesus isn't just kind of the kumbaya singing guy that a lot of us picture him to be. That he's willing to confront out of love and for the good of the people that he's confronting. And so this week I actually stood here. I stood at this pulpit, room empty, and I just decided I have to do this myself before I ask anyone else to do this. And what I did is I read through Matthew 23 and where it says words like Pharisees. I substituted my own name, and I read it out loud. And the exercise for myself, and what we're going to do this morning was this, that as I'm reading this, if I hear it um, with my name, does the Holy Spirit stop and say, yes, that's the place that we need to talk about? I needed to create a way, create space and room for God to confront me, because it's so easy to be slippery, right? And to slide out from any kind of accountability or confrontation. If you read point number two, and you instantly thought, oh, well, so-and-so really needs to be confronted, like my neighbor, my spouse, or whatever it is, right? Instead of, there's probably some places that the Lord needs to confront me. And then you and I are a lot more similar, probably, than you realize. And so as we read this together, I want you to try reading your name into the passage and see how far you get before the Holy Spirit, really in the most loving way possible, says, yeah, we need to talk about this. This is the place. So let's do this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. 
for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, this is where I put my name, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. And skip to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, Well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of, you, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." I don't know how you experienced that. But as I read that and substituted my name for Pharisee, that stung. There were some places the Lord confronted me. There were some places um, he said, we need to talk about that a little bit. And this is the kind of confrontation that is done out of love. This is the kind of confrontation that we can expect and should hope for from the Holy Spirit. Because we know it's not a place of ill intent, but for the good of our souls. And what, we cannot, what cannot be lost on us is that Jesus reserves his harshest confrontation for the most religious of people. 
You see, he kind of, when he goes out into the marketplaces, when he's out amongst the people that aren't claiming to be religious, he's, he's much more whimsical and nuanced and calling them. And he preaches the gospel and he tells them, there is something coming and you need to repent and be saved. But he has dinner with them and he answers questions and he tells parables and he's, he's more of like fishing. But when he comes to the people that claim to be religious, he's much more straightforward. These religious people are the ones who say that they're righteous while living in hidden and habitual sin, like the Pharisees. And for some reason, like I said, we have this view of Jesus that he's kind of like this long-haired surfer guy, beach bum from California. I can say that. I'm from there, right? It's my stereotype, so I get to own it. And we think of Jesus like that sometimes. That he's just like, oh, let's just all get along, man. That's not what the scriptures present of Jesus. No, he's a king. And the king has expectations for those who would be in his kingdom. And he has standards. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? He lays that out for us out of love. Because the standards that he sets are for our good. They lead us away from destruction where generally, if left alone to ourselves and our own devices, our desires lead to our harm and to our destruction. So if we find ourselves in this If we find ourselves in a a Christian culture or a church culture that has no room, no capacity for the loving and good kind of confrontation that we see in Scripture, we're living in an inauthentic community as far as Christians go. We should just stop pretending. The loving confrontation of a friend over sin that they have identified in your life and in my life is a blessing. It's an act of grace from the Lord to us through them. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I've seen this misused. I've seen these concepts abused by people in the church. Maybe you're sitting here and you've experienced that. The point of this is not to try and mold everyone around us into the kind of Christian that we think they ought to be based on preferences that we have or traditions that we've established, but conforming ourselves, iron sharpening iron, back to what the Word says. Being concerned for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are obviously entangled in some kind of sin. That's the purpose of these things. And so there's four filters that you can kind of run these situations through. And this is them. Have I allowed the scriptures to confront me on my own sin first? Right? Remove the log from your eye before trying to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Number two. Have I witnessed the sin firsthand of the person whom I believe I should confront? Or has the rumor mill gotten back to me and now I'm fired up about something? Number three, am I able to clearly see in Scripture where this person's behavior or patterns are sinful? Again, we want to make sure that our actions are always, no matter what we're doing, rooted in the Word. Number four, am I confronting them because I love them and want to see them, see them set free from the sin that has entangled them? Or is it because I'm jealous of them, mad at them, or even just annoyed with them. So our motives have to constantly be checked. Again, because the heart is deceitful, right? Because we're not fully sanctified yet. 
We have to constantly check ourselves. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I wanting to do these things? So love pursues, love confronts, and love does not allow evil to persist forever. Verse 9 of our parable this morning. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And he answers that question. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What do you think it felt like to be one of the religious leaders as that is being said? He will come and destroy the tenants. Do you think there was a shiver that came over them? You know, people talk about in intense moments like your blood runs cold. I don't know if I've ever experienced that. But when someone like Jesus, the God who is, the living God, is predicting your destruction if you do not change, I feel like that would have to have an effect on someone. The Gospel of Mark, it records the first coming of the Lord into the world. And we're told in John 3 that Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn the world. He came to save the world, right? He's like a field doctor with wounded people laying all over the place, needing to be addressed. And he's going out there and he's, he's addressing those things. He's treating people. However, there's a second coming of Jesus that has not happened yet. We've been talking about it a lot in Sunday schools. Right? There's things in the news that are probably making us a little nervous right now. This return is going to be much different than the first one. It's going to be much less like a field medic. And a whole lot more like a general on his war horse with his sword drawn. People love to quote the verse that says God is love. And they should. That's scripture. God is love. I'll affirm that all day long. But what many people don't like is that love requires, requires the ultimate destruction of evil and rebellion against the God that is love. Secondarily is his priority to right the wrongs that you have experienced. He will do that. That is promised. His first priority is to right the wrongs against him from a rebellious humanity that has committed treason against the king of the universe. And these things will take place. They have to take place. And this means that your sin and rebellion will either have been destroyed on that cross by grace or the wrath of God will be poured out upon your rebellious soul for eternity. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to help you step into reality. There's a lot of distractions in the world that take our mind off of eternity. They keep us focused right here all the time. And if we never step out of that, if we never lift our eyes to the greater reality that is playing out around us, then we're going to be like the religious leaders. We're just going to take and take and take whatever we can. And we'll think that we can keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. But the king is coming. Because he's love, he will not allow your evil and sin to go on forever. Because he's love, he will not allow your evil and sin to go on forever. And you have to put those together. It's not in spite of, it's because of. Because he is love, he pursues humanity so that we may repent and live. And because he's love, he confronts so that we may repent and live. And because he's love, his patience for sin will come to an end. Because he's love, there's a future for every Christian prepared that is void of pain and sin and backstabbing and slander and manipulation and addiction and death. 
because he's love. All those things will come to an end, which means the sin in all of us and the sin in the world also must come to an end for that promise to be fulfilled. This is the reality that we live in. The question is, what are you going to do with the information? Now that you've been confronted with the scriptures, you've been confronted with the reality that we live in, what do you do with the information? Like, I hope I've made clear, we have to allow our souls first, ours, right? You start with you. You deal with this sin first. You have to allow that to be confronted by the Holy Spirit. Maybe for the first time this morning, you're, you're having that kind of honest internal conversation. And the Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder saying, yeah, it's time to talk about this. It's time to talk about the darker corners of your soul that they don't know about. That only you and I are aware of at this point. Maybe for the first time this morning you're realizing that there are people around you that you love. There are people around you that you deeply, deeply care about. That if they died in this moment, they would not be in heaven. Maybe the tension that you're feeling in this moment is that those are people that you have never warned. That you have never confronted with the gospel. That you've never opened up with about your faith. And that is something that is haunting you as you think about it. Nathan, you can join me at this time. There was a season in high school, high school age-ish, somewhere in there, um, where I was not serving the Lord. I, I had been you know, hurt by a few things and not really interested in, in church at the moment. And I was just living kind of wickedly uh, for myself and for the world. And I was staying with someone. I had a roommate at the time. And we were, we were sitting at dinner. I think the news was on, and he commented on it. And because I had grown up in church, I knew a lot, right? Like, I, I had, like, the Bible trivia stuff in my head. And so he said something, and I challenged him based on what I knew about the Bible. And he stopped me. He stopped me in my tracks, and he responded harshly with, Don't you dare start preaching at me. He said, I live with you, I know how you live, and it is no different than me. So I want nothing to do with that God of yours. What difference would it make? And really, he silenced me because he was right. What could I say? Because I hadn't been allowing the Holy Spirit to confront me in those moments. I had become slippery and hard to get a hold of. My heart wasn't looking for those things. It was looking for whatever made me happy at the time. A couple years after this conversation, my friend died. I was never able to have a follow-up conversation with him. I was never able to show him, like, this is what the Lord has done in my life. And I'm, I'm so sorry you had to see it at where it was. And really, that's... Uh, That is a night and a conversation that continues to haunt me to this day. Charles Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned, And unprayed for. 
So church, we can't be the evil servants in the parable. We have to respond to the warning and not let it play out the way that it can. It can. We have to take this parable as the, the gracious confrontation that it is to us and that it was to them in that moment. At least the religious leaders at the time were honest enough to say, that's about me. Can we get there this morning? We have to be willing to pursue and confront and warn the world out of love. Don't buy into the pressure that you're going to be faced with again the second you walk out the doors. That if you really love them, you'll just be quiet and say, I'm happy for you. Do you love your spouse, your coworker, your neighbor enough to confront them with the love of the gospel? Maybe it's you. Like, are you the one that has rejected the cornerstone, like Jesus said? You're trying to build something, but it's built on sand. It's not going to last. It's an empire of sandcastles that are going to be washed away. Don't reject Christ this morning. Don't reject the Holy Spirit's confrontation to your soul. Welcome it. See it as the loving act that it is. If your heart is heavy this morning for whatever reason, if you're feeling broken over your sin, if you're feeling broken over missed opportunities, man, I know that feeling. I'll be down here at the front and you have an opportunity to respond. You can go beyond what the religious leaders did when they heard this parable. They heard it and they said, that's about me. But then it ended there. They came to an intellectual ascent of the truth, but it never manifested in faith in their heart. And you have the opportunity to not make that same mistake this morning. You can come down to the front and I will pray with you. If your heart is heavy, if your heart is ready to say yes to the Lord, to stop fighting and stop rejecting that cornerstone, you have that opportunity this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would just empower us as we walk out those doors to be bold and faithful in a dark world. That we would be the salt and the light preparing the earth for your return. But before all of that, prepare our hearts. Father, start here in this church. Bring revival here and then let it flow to the community. Let us hate sin and love your righteousness. Let us see your confrontation as a faithful friend trying to help remove our feet from a trap that we've been caught in. Father, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to put the sin to death that still remains. Help us to heed your warnings and be faithful to the end. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.